Before we start the episode, I wanted to reflect a little bit on a a quote from presidential candidate Hillary Clinton that she said last week. As you know, the U.S. is gearing up for a new presidential election with Hillary Clinton and hotel, hotelier and reality star, reality television star Donald Trump. So Clinton is now taking a new tact, claiming that Trump would be terribly dangerous and incompetent in global statecraft, particularly in foreign policy and war. So she says, there's no risk of people losing their lives if you blow up a golf course deal, she said. But it doesn't work like that in world affairs. Bottom line, the stakes in global warcraft, I'm sorry, I misread that. The stakes in global statecraft are infinitely higher and more complex than in the world of luxury hotels. So that might be very well true. And there are a lot of things at stake when you are in statecraft, the global statecraft, which usually means global warcraft, as I slipped up before, but really that's what it means. But what, who stakes for who? In the hotel deal, you're talking about someone using their own money to build something of value for other people and then getting the return of that in terms of getting profit and money and happy customers. In the second one, the one that's more complicated, more intense, it's someone who's using someone else's money, putting other people's lives at risk, and the whole point is the loss of life in global statecraft. So it's kind of perverted that we somehow would see that the stakes are are somewhat more valuable or, or more important in global statecraft than we would in a hotel deal, even though one is wholesale evil and the other one gives people a nice place to sleep. Now, when Trump is actually elected president, he will be, in global statecraft, will be using someone else's money, risking other people's lives with the intent of purposely losing someone's life, whether it be the enemy or accidentally losing our own troops. But still, come on, let's let's not in in this statement there is a an elevation or a glorification of global statecraft or global warcraft, which is kind of perverse, and I don't think most people can see it. Most people just reading uh, this on the Huffington Post or whatever would, would see. Now, I don't have a, I'm not rooting for either one of these psychopaths, so I, I guess I don't really care what they say. But I do want to reflect on how that reflects a general attitude of the preeminence of war in the United States. Okay, let's start the episode. Jeff Till's 500years.org podcast, episode 22. Today is June 6th, 2016, and today we're continuing our F-Word in America series. This time, we're hitting on militarism. As discussed in the previous two F-Word in America series, we see that fascism, the F-Word, has three major components that comprise its philosophy, or really, as we discussed earlier, it's not philosophy here, but just its actual manifestation, despite being called a lot of other things. One of them is third position economics, which is a tight connection of the government telling private business owners how to run their business and essentially centrally planning an economy 
but still retaining private ownership. Also, it was called corporatism by Mussolini, and it's also called crony capitalism. And we went through that for about an hour and a half, and it was sort of like, you know, do we have third position economics? And it was like, oh my God, like every industry, practically every industry is steeply embedded in with the government and vice versa. So that was like sort of a holy shit moment for me. It's like, wow, we really have that one aspect. Now, the second aspect we discussed was nationalism. And of course, at first, I didn't think we were that nationalistic until I actually sat and went through the analysis. And by the end of that, I was like, holy shit, we've really got nationalism going on here. So the third and the most natural next part of the series would be militarism. So the question we want to answer today is, is the United States militaristic? Do they have that third part of fascism? Are they heavily militarized? The answer is yes. Holy shit, yes. So now that we've gotten that taken care of, I really want to thank you for listening to this installment, and I look forward to talking to you real soon again. Thanks. Bye-bye. Off we go into the wild blue yonder, climbing high into the sun. Here they come, zooming to meet our thunder. Adam, boys, give it a go. Well, I guess we could do a little bit more than that, so why don't you stay tuned? Young people from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part, too. (laughs) They're doing their part. Are you? Join the mobile infantry and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. So when we think of a country or a society being militarized, I think it's much more common to think of having soldiers domestically everywhere and having leaders like when you see Saddam Hussein or the North Korean president there in military garb. And that would certainly be a prime indicator that you have a pretty militarized society. But I think a more accurate reflection isn't just in how some people are dressing, but where the country is making its investments, its tolerance, and both sort of ethical, you know, philosophical, and appetite for actually having military and war, and what the general attitudes, whether they're ingrained in children, or just the media and the peoples believe. And so I think if we take that latter definition, we will find a lot of militarization in the United States. That last clip was from the great movie Starship Troopers, based, I believe, on the Heinlein novel. Uh, Highly recommended, but in that one, that movie, we get to see one of the more explicitly uh, a fictional militarized society, which has some of those features I was taught, both both the features of the uniform-wearing leaders as well as, as troops everywhere. But let's take a look at America and see where our attitudes, and I say our, but I mean the general populace's attitudes are. So I'm going to read some facts about the United States Armed Forces from Wikipedia. And this is almost cheating, but I'll try to add in some of my own perspective as we go through this. Because I actually don't have a lot of experience with either the armed forces personally or the history of the armed forces or much to do about the military or militarism at all. So who am I to talk? But we have to be complete in our analysis. So let's try to sort of trudge through this. The United States armed forces are the federal armed forces for of the United States. That was helpful. They consist of the Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, and Coast Guard. The President of the United States is the military's overall head and helps form military policy within the U.S. Department of Defense, or the DOD, a federal executive department acting as the principal organ by which military policy is carried out. From the time of its inception, the military played a decisive role in the history of the United States. A sense of national unity and identity was forged as a result of the victory in the First Barbary War and the Second Barbary War. So, okay. So that's the first time 
it suggested that we had a sense of national unity and identity, and that was the result of a war victory. Even so, the founders were suspicious of a permanent military force. Good. It played an important role in the American Civil War, where leading generals on both sides were picked from members of the United States military. Not until the outbreak of World War II did a large standing army become officially established. The Nationals... Okay, so we actually lived without a full-time standing army for the first 200 years that the country was around. Not quite that much. First 150 years. The National Security Act of 1947 adopted following World War II and during the Cold War's onset created the modern U.S. military framework. The act merged previously cabinet-level Department of War and the Department of the Navy Navy into the National Military Establishment, renamed the Department of Defense in 1949. Kind of interesting that it used to be called the Department of War instead of the Department of Defense. I find it also interesting that the military structure as we know it only came into existence since around the birth of my parents. So this is only like a generation old, or two generations, I guess. The headed by the Secretary of Defense and created the Department of the Air Force and the National Security Council. The U.S. military is one of the largest militaries in terms of number of personnel. It draws its manpower from a large pool of paid volunteers, although conscription has been used in the past in various times of both war and peace. It has not been used since 1972. So conscription, I, I'm, I'm actually commenting more than I thought I would. Conscription is, is truly an evil thing that governments can do because that's actually making someone sign up to shoot people and be shot at. And we even talk about the volunteer army and even we call them volunteers, but most of them through both their indoctrination in school, their personal circumstance of either probably being impoverished or, or needing college funds or whatever, I think are sort of hoodwinked into a similar situation of killing people and being shot at. I'm not going to talk too much about troops, mostly because that can get dicey and someone who would take offense, one of these people who were trained how to kill people will come and kick my ass. Anyways, so that's that's a little bit about troops. As of 2016, the United States spends about $580 billion annually to fund its military forces and overseas contingency operations. Put together, the United States constitutes roughly 39% of the world's military expenditures. For the period of 2010 to 14, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute found that the United States was the world's largest exporter of major arms, accounting for 31% of global shares. The United States was also the world's eighth largest importer of major weapons for the same period. The U.S. Armed Forces has significant capabilities in both defense and power projection due to its large budget, resulting in advanced, powerful equipment and its widespread deployment of force around the world, including about 800 military bases in foreign locations. Okay, well, so that sounds kind of big. Those are some big dollar figures. That's a lot of bases. Let's keep on going. So here we're, we're going to read the history. The history of the U.S. military dates to 1775, even before, before the Declaration of Independence marked the establishment of the United States. The Continental Army, Continental Navy, and Continental Marines were created in close succession by the Second Continental Congress in order to defend the new nation against the British Empire in the American Revolutionary War, which is essentially the, probably the last time you know America was actually attacked. These forces demobilized in 1784 after the Treaty of Paris ended the war for independence. The Congress of the Confederation created the United States Army on the 3rd of June, 1784, and the United States Congress created the United States Navy on March 1794, and the United States Marine Corps in July of 1798. All three services traced origins to found the, the founding of the Continental Army, the Continental Navy, and the Continental Marines, respectively. The 1787 adoption of the Constitution gave the Congress the power to raise and support armies, provide and maintain a navy, and to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, as well as the power to declare war. 
the United States president is the U.S. military's commander-in-chief. So it was the Constitution that gave Congress all this power. And for some reason, apparently, they didn't do it in any kind of permanent facility for quite a few years, like about 150 years. Note that the United States president is the military's commander-in-chief. So he probably could, if he wanted to, wear one of the uniforms, similar to how you would see Mussolini or Saddam Hussein or Kim Jong-il or any of these other sort of presidents that wear military garb. I think Hitler was one of them. So rising tensions at various times with Britain and France and the ensuing quasi-war and War of 1812 quickened the development of the U.S. Navy and the, and the United States Marine Corps. The U.S. Coast Guard dates its origin to the founding of the Revenue Cutter Service in 1790. That service merged with the United States Life Saving Service in 1915 to establish the Coast Guard. So we used to have a life-saving service as opposed to a murder service. The United States Air Force was established as an independent service on 18 September 1947. It traces its origin to the formation of the Aeronautical Division, U.S. Signal Corps, in 1907 and was part of the Army before becoming an independent service. And uh, that's pretty much the history. The Reserve Branch formed a military strategic reserve during the Cold War to be called into service in case of war. So let's talk about the history of war. And I'll have to apologize. Comically, my son and his friend are having a Nerf war right outside the hallway where I'm recording this. So you might hear some guns cocking and some screaming going on. Oh, the irony. So... Obviously, the first war that we had as a country was the American Revolutionary War, then the Whiskey Rebellion, the Indian Wars, Barbary Wars, then the War of 1812, the Patriot War, Mexican-American War, the Utah War, the Cortina Troubles, the Reform War, and that takes us to the American Civil War, the Las Cuevas War, Spanish-American War, Banana Wars, Philippine, um, I've never heard of some of these, like the Banana Wars was not taught to me in school. The Philippine-American War, Boxer Rebellion, Border War, World War I, Russian Civil War, I didn't know we were part of that, World War II, the Cold War, which, I don't know, do they really have to call that a war if no one was fighting? I guess it was all those proxy battles. Puerto Rican nationalist revolts, the Korean War, the 1958 Lebanon Crisis, Operation Power Pack, Vietnam War, Korean DMZ conflict, Operation Eagle Claw, I don't know what that is, uh, Multinational Force Lebanon, Invasion of Granada, Operation Golden Pheasant, that might be interesting, Invasion of Panama, Persian Gulf War, Somali Civil War, Kosovo War, War on Terror, Operation Enduring Freedom, that's in the Afghanistan, the Philippines, Horn of Africa, Trans-Sahara, the Iraq War, War in Northwest Pakistan, Pakistan, United States skirmishes, inter intervention against ISIL. Well, holy shit, that's a lot of wars. <laughs> it sounds like we might be militaristic. So America, I've read the statistic, America has been at war 93% of the time of its existence. So 20 222 out of 239 years, meaning there was a total of... 17 years of actual peace which is pretty crazy so now let's go to personnel the projective active duty and strength in the armed forces for fiscal year 2016 was 1,301,300 people with an additional 811,000 people in the seven reserve components it is an all-volunteer military, and I don't know if I, I like that use of the term right there, not even because they get compensated, but because they also are contractually obligated to stay in once they sign in. So it's not like you it's voluntary like, a, uh, like going shopping is or, or having a girlfriend. Once you sign up, they can actually make you hold to your contract, not let you leave, and can even extend it in times without your authority. Uh, conscription through the selective service system can be enacted at the president's request and Congress's approval. So that's how far away reinstating conscription is. 
All males ages 18 through 25 who are living in the United States are re- required to register with the Secret Service for a potential fu- future draft. Now, that's that's pretty scary. And, of course, right now in the news, they're talking about whether women should also have to register with Selective Service so that our young ladies can be drafted to murder and be shot at. The U.S. military is the world's second largest after China's People's Liberation Armies and has troops deployed around the globe. Well, I didn't know that. I always figured that we had the largest military, but I guess China would have a a lot more of a population to draw from. I I know their their budget isn't anywhere the same, so they must just have a lot of troops carrying around uh, smaller guns or spears or something. From 1776 until September 2012, a total of 40 million people have served in the United States Armed Forces. The fiscal year 2017 Department of Defense budget request plan calls for an active duty end strength of 1,281,000, a decrease from 19,000 people from the 2016 baseline as a result of decrements in the Army and Navy strength. So they're gonna they're gonna cut what looks to be about a tenth of one percent. I'll, I'll get my calculator out. So it's about twenty thousand out of a group of one point two million. The budget request also calls for reserve component and strength of eight hundred one eight hundred one thousand, which is a de- decrease of nine thousand eight hundred personnel. And so that is about one percent. Hey, we're on the right track. As in most militaries, members of the U.S. military hold a rank, either that of officer, warrant, or enlisted, to determine seniority and eligibility for promotion. Those who have served are known as veterans. Rank names may be different between services, but they are matched to each other by their corresponding pay grade. Blah, 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 blah. Currently, only one in four persons in the United States of the proper age meet the moral, academic, and physical standards for military service. And I could probably look this up, but I'm curious to what the moral standards are. Well, let's do that. So so I did a Google search for moral standards of the U.S. military, and the, the first link I got was the Army Values. And they actually they have a whole section on their site which has about nine different uh, areas of instruction that are all about ethos, the creed, the oath of enlistment and other things that have sort of moral content, loosely speaking. And as I read these, they they sound they sound fine. Uh, they're they're actually pretty similar to what we would have done in Boy Scouts. But when you sort of read into them, there's very much a request for obedience and conformity. So the first one is loyalty to bear true faith and allegiance to the U.S. Constitution, the Army, your unit, and other soldiers. And, okay, so not very individualistic there. Uh, Duty is the second one, to fulfill your obligations. You fulfill your obligations as part of your unit every time you resist the temptation to take shortcuts that might undermine, undermine the integrity of the final product. So loyalty and then duty, which they frame as obligation. The next one is respect, which I think respect is a good thing to have. The next one is selfless service. So you put the welfare of the nation, the army, and your subordinates before your own. Selfless service is larger than just one person. In serving your country, you are doing your duty loyally, loyal, um, loyally without thought of recognition or gain. The basic building block of selfless service is the commitment to each team member to go a little further, endure a little longer, and look a little closer to see how she or he or she can add to the effort. So this is pretty, this would, uh, I think, make Ayn Rand roll in her grave about having to give yourself up for the the betterment of the, the others. The next one's honor. So live up to army values which I guess is what we're reading right now. The nation's highest military award is the Medal of Honor. This award goes to soldiers who make honor a matter of daily living, soldiers who develop the habit of being honorable and solidify that habit with every value choice that they make. Honor is a matter of carrying out, acting, and living the values of respect, duty, loyalty, selfless service, integrity, and personal courage in everything you do. 
So just to repeat that, honor is a, is a matter of carrying out, acting, and living the values of respect, duty, loyalty, selflessness, etc. So that's what honor means in this context, is to be, again, you know, duty, obedience, self-sacrifice. The next one is integrity. Do what's right, legally and morally. Integrity is a quality developed by adhering to moral principles. It requires that you do and say nothing that deceives others. As your integrity grows, so does the trust others place in you. The more choices you make based on integrity, the more the highly prized value will affect your relationships with family and friends. And finally, the fundamental acceptance of yourself. Well, that sounds nice. Personal courage. Face fear, danger, and adversity, physical or moral. Personal courage has been associated with our army. With physical courage, is it a matter? It's it is a matter of enduring physical duress and at times risking personal safety. Facing moral fear or adversity may be a long, slow process of continuing forward on the right path, especially if taking those actions is not but uh, not popular with others. You can build your personal courage by daily standing up for and acting upon the things that you know are honorable. So. A lot of these are sort of self-referential, you know, such as honor being, uh, you know, having the habit of being honorable, and they all sort of reference each other. So these are the, the morals that the army wants to pitch. They, they don't quite line up with the morality, the sort of the libertarian, non-aggression, non-aggression principle type morality, which would pretty much be limited to things like, you know, don't kill people, which obviously can't be part of the army's moral code don't steal um, which they can't do because they're completely funded through taxpayer money which is theft so basically the two probably most major violations of morality are completely incompatible with these 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 set of uh morals or these values which is too bad so if we look at the formation the history of both the military and war, it's been pervasive and constant through the nation's entire history. And the sheer number of wars and the sheer percentage of time that we've been at war would say that we're fairly militaristic. And then if you look at the personnel of how many people, the that's essentially about 2 million people. Uh, according to the Department of Defense site, um, there is also a civilian force of the thousand. So there's 1.3 million men and women in active duty. There's 742,000 civilian personnel. I'm not sure who those are. Those might be people who actually work at the offices or something. And then there's another 826,000 who serve in the National Guard and Reserve Forces. And then this also makes the U.S. military the largest, the nation's largest employer. So that's going to be more than the post office and more than Walmart or anywhere else that has a big workforce. And more than 2 million military retirees and their family members receive benefits. So this is interesting. Uh, headquarters of the Department of Defense, the, Pent uh, the Pentagon is one of the largest office buildings. It is twice the size of Merchandise Mart in Chicago and has three times the floor space of the Empire State Building in New York. Built during the early years of World War II, it is still thought of as one of the efficient office buildings in the world. Despite 17.5 miles of corridors, it takes only seven minutes to walk between any two points in the building. Fascinating. The Defense Department manages an inventory of installations and facilities to keep Americans safe. The department's physical plant is huge by any standard, consisting of more than several hundred thousand individual buildings and structures located at more than 5,000 different locations or sites. Several hundred thousand individual buildings. I mean, think about that. So if, if you've only got like two to three million people in the military, yet they have several hundred thousand uh, individual buildings, maybe they're all tents that these people stay in and they're counting those as buildings. And so they're located in more than 5,000 different locations or sites. When all sites are added together, the Department of Defense utilizes over 30 million acres of land. Wow. There are a few who move toward the sounds of chaos, ready to respond at a moment's notice. 
time comes, we are the first to move toward the sounds of tyranny, injustice, and despair. They are forged in the crucible of training. They are the few, the proud, the Marines. So that was a recruiting video for the Marines. I'm sure you've seen dozens, if not hundreds, of these for the Army, the Marines, the Navy, the Air Force, etc. And of course, they always have this certain heroic stoicism to them and a lot of themes about honor and discipline and making yourself a better person. And this really all, this is just one of the many things that develop soldier glorification in the United States. Soldier glorification is widespread. We're given a ton of it in school. And I've talked about this in the very first podcast and probably in the nationalism podcast, but we have 13 years of a perfect on-ramp into soldiering, where we're told that war is just, that soldiering is honorable, and of course the whole authority, conformity, discipline, obedience lessons that we learn in school. We also talked about in the nationalism how other other forms of soldier glorification come anywhere from video games to movies as we did to the glut of holidays we have such as veterans day armed services day memorial day etc that all are to honor soldiers and of course you can tell when people were conflicted such as with the iraq war is that it was always everyone had to be very careful to denounce the war but still support the troops so you even had people who would vocally say that the war is wrong and ill-timed and ill-thought-out and based on a lie, but still felt very obligated to support the troops because, you know, they were sort of a, a different entity. And I, I sort of agree with that to an extent. I, I do sort of find them to be victims of probably propaganda and falsehoods and bad promises. But the whole the whole fact that we can't even talk about soldiering and whether it's good or bad, heavily affects the, the public attitude towards war and militarism. A couple of weeks ago, on provocative alternative historian Thaddeus Russell's Facebook feed on Memorial Day, he decided to make some very controversial statements about soldiers. It's going as far as, I'm going to paraphrase, but saying uh, draft dodgers and non-consenters were probably more honorable, and that he shouldn't have to honor, in another post, he shouldn't have to honor soldiers who fought in a war he didn't support and he didn't want to pay for. And both, I thought, were, were very legitimate comments, uh, but he did it almost as to bait the audience, which a lot of the people who agree with him were, were nice to agree. But of course, it eventually showed up that some people brought the sort of honor argument into it, and when that wasn't necessarily convincing anyone they eventually go to this other argument, which is, you know, I dare you to say that in front of a bunch of veterans or a bunch of active soldiers, because, you know, implying that they will beat you up. And I had that experience too, posting on a libertarian site, you know, where I suggested that soldiers fighting right now didn't actually guarantee my right to free speech, or that, you know, they weren't actually actively protecting my free speech. And of course, this is a, an obvious and almost dumb comment on its face, because how could bombing people in tents 6,000 miles away have anything, you know, have any bearing on my ability to say something? But this, of course, offended a lot of people. And the, you know, the, the one comment I always found odd is, is again, that, yeah, but, but if you were to say that to a soldier, then they would beat you up. So the person protecting my right to free speech would actually beat me up if I, ex if ex I exercised free speech and that person would be an employee of the government. So it's, it's completely ridiculous. And the fact that we can't talk honestly about the good and bad of soldiering, which I think if we had an honest conversation, just about everything would be bad. Uh, you know, even even um, going to the, the 
the fact that it's a credential that supposedly will help you get a job. I'm not sure if that's really true. The the idea that it provides money for college. I, I recently worked on a paper for the that was for the uh, DOD through a, a secondary client. And I learned that the, the amount of money you get for college is something like $4,500 per year. So to actually put yourself on a 24-hour military schedule to do all that training and then go shoot people and be shot at just to get $4,500 a year for school. I mean, if, if you put it that much work or even half that much work into a job at Burger King, you probably could still live cheaply or with your parents and or in a tent like you would in the military and then still easily sock away that 4.5 you know $4,500 the what would be the other the other benefit of course is like suicide and depression and getting hurt as of now there are more war on terror US soldiers who have committed suicide than have actually fallen in combat which is kind of sad so ultimately I have a ton of empathy for soldiers and veterans for what they did and what they went through. But I, I think just piling glory, this glorification, this this uh, sunny beam of, of adulation and respect or whatever doesn't really help our cause of not being a militarized, murderous country. Marching as to So our, the U.S. history and the personnel show our investment in militarism. Does the actual money investment reflect milita- militarism as well? Sorry. So here I'm going to read more from Wikipedia on the budget. The United States has the world's largest military budget. In the fiscal year 2016, $580 billion in funding were enacted for the Department of Defense and for overseas contingency operations in the war on terrorism. Outside of direct Department of Defense spending, the United States spends another 218 to $262 billion each year on other defense-related programs, such as Veterans Affairs, Homeland Security, Nuclear Weapons Maintenance, and the State Department. So just to pause for a second, 580 plus 262 uh, puts us somewhere around $800 billion per year. By service, $146 billion was allocated for the Army, $168 billion for the Navy and Marine Corps, $161 billion for the Air Force, and $102 billion for defense-wide spending. So they, they break it up pretty evenly amongst group. By function, $138 billion was requested for personnel, so I think that's payroll, $244 billion for operations and maintenance, $100 18 billion for procurement, 69 billion for research and development, 1.3 billion for revolving and management funds, which is probably consulting, 6.9 billion for military construction, and 1.3 billion for family housing. Well, that seems kind of kind of like a small number there. In fiscal year 2009, major defense programs saw continued funding. These are examples, I believe. $4.1 billion was requested for the next-generation fighter F-22 Raptor, which was to roll out an additional 20 planes in 2009. So let's see. 20 goes into $4 billion. What? Does that, does that make it $80 million? I should get a calculator. Hold on. Oops. Uh, so that works out to $200 million per plane. So what is, it would be, um, that's a lot of money. Uh, $6.7 billion was requested for the F-35 Lightning II, which is still in development, but 16 planes were slated to be built. So those would be even more expensive, maybe $300 million per plane. The future combat system program is expected to seize $3.6 billion for its development. I don't know what that is. Well, let's look it up. Da-da-da, hold on. We'll open link on a new window. The Future Combat Systems was the United States Army's principal modernization program from 2003 to early 2009, formally launched in 2003. Future Combat Systems was envisioned to create new brigades equipped with new manned and unmanned vehicles linked by an unprecedented fast and flexible battlefield network. Wow, cool. In April and May 2009, Pentagon and Army officials announced that the 
future combat system vehicle development effort would be canceled. Huh. The rest of the FCS effort would be swept into a new pan-army program called the Army Brigade Combat Team Modernization Program. Well, what's that? Let's see. We'll open this in a new window. Oh, it's um, something like the same thing with a new name. Uh, but heavily on battlefield network. A rotational scale that would have leveraged mobility, protection, information, and precision fires to to conduct effective operations to succeed in current and future full-spectrum military operations, e.g. killing people. So, okay. Full disclosure, I, I'm not going to say how, but I actually benefit from this those initiatives indirectly through my clients. So some of my clients actually serve the military-industrial complex, and occasionally I have to uh, write a paper for them. And you would think that I'm being a bit hypocritical here since I'm critical of the whole the whole mess. But if I refuse just these, these few handful of assignments, then people will start thinking I'm not going to do the other assignments, which represent you know 99.9% of my, my work, which is all non-war-related. Uh, a total of $12.3 billion was requested for missile defense, including, in, including Patriot Cap, PAC-3, and the SBIRS High. I don't know what those are. Some notes on the high cost of those individual airplanes, the 20 planes that all cost $200 million each, or the one that hasn't even made it out of the uh, development stage yet and is uh, going to be $300 million each. These, of course, are tremendous sort of make-work. They're sometimes defended as make-work-type projects from the government, sort of a Keynesian let's create jobs type of thing, even to the point where, at least on hearsay, they split up the manufacturing of these across all 50 states so that all senators and other congressmen are going to support these initiatives. They're also seen as part of the GDP and economic calculation, and which is kind of, it's odd, you know, so people earn money honestly, then the government takes it, and then they spend it with contractors to make these airplanes, and it, it's all like triple counted through that whole process. The other thing is, is that if you're only making 20 of something that has a lot of technology, it's going to be like super expensive. So for example, I, I thought this number would be higher, but I just looked up how much the first iPhone cost to develop, and it was $150 million in research funds. Now, if they had only made 20 of those, each self, each uh, iPhone would cost $7.5 million. So that's just a little perspective. And so I'm not uh, super excited about these airplane projects because they are just going to be used to kill people. But And I'm not even sure if they need fighter planes anymore. Like, I don't know if the Red Baron is still out there and they're doing plane-to-plane combat. I thought mostly they just uh, drop bombs via robots on poor people now. But I understand why they would cost so much, and that doesn't make it the right thing to do, because they should go into it going, you know, guys, it's really expensive to make 20 of something, so maybe we just shouldn't do it. So Lauren Thompson, continuing on with Wikipedia, Lauren Thompson, a defense analyst with the Lexington Institute, has blamed the vast sums of money squandered on cutting-edge technology projects that were then canceled on short-sighted political operatives who lack a long-term perspective in setting requirements. Hmm. That's interesting. So you have an airplane that's an asset that's supposed to last probably 30 years, maybe even some, I bet some of the ships that we have in the fleet, we have, the U.S. Army has in the fleet, um, or the U.S. Navy, rather, are, are probably even older than that, maybe even, you know, 70, 80 years old. In fact, I think in Boston, old Ironsides from the Revolutionary War is still considered a active Navy vessel, and that's got sails on it. But how could um, how could people who you know are supposed to only serve in Congress for four years, six years, whatever, uh, a couple of terms, actually make you know with someone else's money make uh, long-term commitments to expensive assets that are supposed to last decades? It's impossible. The result is that the number of items bought under a given program are cut. The total development costs of the programs are divided over fewer platforms, making the per unit cost seem higher. And so the numbers are cut again and again in a death spiral. So maybe they do shriek at that 200 million per plane and then they get nervous and they cut. Although the US 
was the world's biggest exporter of major weapons in 2010-14. The U.S. was also the world's eighth biggest importer during the same period. U.S. arms imports increased 21% in recent years. Cost containment measures in the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act and the Obama administration's energy policy will play a critical determining roles because healthcare and fuel costs are the two fastest growing segments of the defense budget. Interesting. I wonder if that's for the veteran affairs who I think use VA hospitals. They have their own sort of single payer system. Or if it's for active soldiers, I would have figured they would have had on-site medics or something. But maybe they don't. So if we take that budget, which is about $800 billion, and of course if we imagine if they were to sustain that like over... 20 years that'd be like what 16 trillion and i don't know if that math is right but it's just a tremendous amount of money anyways if you divide that up between let's assume that the united states has 100 million households i think the population is a little over 300 million let's assume three people live in a household and just for easy math that would put it out to about eight thousand dollars for military uh per per taxpayer per household so i think it would be I mean, that's 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 a pretty intense sum of money and of course not everybody pays that some money a lot of people aren't even paying eight thousand dollars in total taxes my tax bill for 2015 was around fifty thousand dollars just to the feds so i i presume that at least probably a third or you know somewhere around that went to the the military and the veterans budget so that would be more like you know, 15,000 that I actually had to pay. Now, it'd be great if instead of that sneaky way of pulling taxes out of our paychecks is if at the end of the year, you just got one bill for $8,000 that said for war. And I think if people got that, they would be somewhere between frustrated and wholesale bullshit about having to pay that. For other fun, you could also figure out how many people you have passively killed with military taxes so it's it's a way of saying like how many how many deaths did i did did my money help fund and i did this analysis about 10 years ago when the the war was still only about three years old or at least a war on terror and it turned out at the time i was responsible for 12 people per year now of course i'm not the one who decided to go and kill these people overseas but just doing that fun little exercise, yeah, that's what I came up with. So in this bill that you get for your $8,000, it'd be neat to say, you know, thanks to your contribution, we managed to kill 12 people. And then what would be great after that is that if they actually had like nice death reports, like um, used to be able to, or you still can, you, you know, for the cost of a cup of coffee a day, you can help a poor African child. And in these services, they would actually send you a picture of the child and you would get maybe, a, I think we used to get like a small written letter and there would be sometimes you'd get updates year after year about what they, uh, what they received. And we, my mother had a, um, one of these adopted African children and we would send a present. I remember the one I most vividly remember is we sent it a Nerf soccer ball and the people in importing or taking care of the nerf soccer ball tore it to pieces looking for stolen drugs or diamonds or something anyway it'd be neat like if on your your sort of your military bill so it's eight thousand dollars 12 people were murdered and then they have pictures and little bios of the 12 people that were killed and maybe there'd be a couple of you know a few combatants you know that look pretty nasty and but then there would also be the family from the church that was bombed or the mosque that was bombed and the mother and the, the you know the children and you know this person was a cobbler and they could have probably two nice photos they could have like one photo of them of the child playing soccer or like you know hugging his mom or eating a, a bowl of kibbe or whatever and then the picture of him uh laying in the street from the drone bomb you know with his head smashed in and his uh, half his arm missing and so we could see them both alive and then dead. And you could put this whole package together saying, you know, let's support, let's support, let's support the troops. Okay. I think that would really, I mean, that would be an honest 
probably the only really truly honest way we could all start thinking about this and maybe changing our attitudes in spite of our indoctrination in school and the media. So uh, this podcast wasn't really supposed to be about whether we should have a military or not. It was more of whether we have a militarism in our culture and society. But if we were to talk briefly about whether we should have a military or not, you know, if it's really just to keep us safe, then there's no really real business attacking primitives 6,000 miles away, especially after the U.S. was the one that bought them their weapons and whatever vehicles they have in the first place. To keep us safe, you would just spend some horrible fraction of that money on people, you know, protecting the, the border or whatever, or making sure dangerous people don't get in, or, or even if, if they're in, uh, you you know, make the uh, make nine eleven more difficult to happen. You wouldn't have you'd have to you know spend you know probably a hundredth of the amount of money to do any of that. And then if if sometimes they say we need the military because we're helping these people because they live under oppressive cultures with unelected officials, they're murdering uh, themselves, they're beheading people, they're awful people. Well, first if if we if we didn't buy them weapons, they wouldn't be so ferocious and had we not been harassing them i see that come on saying we but if had the western militaries haven't been harassing them since the end of world war ii and bombing their you know bombing their husbands for so long then they wouldn't be as uh, irritated and violent and so dead set on doing anyone else harm and if you really wanted to help what you could do is you would rescue people or you would persuade them you could you could spend money on buying them literature saying that you know these these practices these you know violent tendencies aren't nice we could send them a nice video a dvd along with the dvd player explaining morality and a, a better way to live maybe we can throw in a little bit of economics to show them how they can get out of the tent or we could uh, bring people over the people who aren't who don't like who are being oppressed or need the the democracy or the freedom or the protection from violence we can bring them somewhere safe and they can go live in new mexico so there'd probably be a bunch of other ways besides dropping bones uh, i'm sorry bombs from robots from flying robots to help people and probably better ways to keep us safe than dropping bombs from robots onto poor people so that was a very short way of saying that we if we do need a military it could have a very different function and i think some people would argue is that we need militarism the philosophy or the social construct to support a military which i actually believe is true because if we didn't have such a, a positive and revered notion of the military we would not probably want one at least to the degree in which we have one so it, it is Militarism is militarism is necessary. Now, if we had a new, a newly functioning military that helped people and protected people, then we could still look at it culturally as an as a unfortunate evil or an unfortunate unfortunate burden, not something that we honor and revere and think is so special. So that's my immediate thoughts on there. I really, my own personal opinion is that we probably don't need a military at all. We probably could have, um, you know, pay private agencies at least to, co- you know, patrol the coast. And, you know, maybe maybe people would buy some kind of small insurance and these, this, these insurance operators would, would help protect us. But I really don't think there's really any, any other army that's going to get in a boat and drop off enough men to tackle this landmass. It's too far away, and it's got too many guns in it, and it's too big. And this is easily proven because there are other countries which have no significant military that aren't invaded, like, I don't know, like Iceland maybe. And there's also big examples of countries that are relatively small and relatively unarmed who, no matter how long we attack, say like Vietnam or Afghanistan, it's impossible to ever successfully occupy the territory in any meaningful way. So I would just do away with the whole thing. So thank you so much for listening. 
in conclusion, we I think we've successfully proven that there's a good case that the United States has the third feature of fascism, which is militarism, joining its other two features of corporatist economics and heavy-duty nationalism. I would, so this, in conclusion, I, you know, I would say that the United States we could categorize as maintaining fascism right now, which I have to imagine creates a ton of frustration amongst both liberals and conservatives who are wondering why the free market isn't quite delivering what they thought it would, or why the government isn't necessarily looking out in their best interest. With the conservatives sort of always wishing that the government, you know, hate, hating the current government and wish it was something that it used to be. The liberals actually hate the go- current government too, but wishing it could be something different, something new. And then, of course, the libertarians not wishing it was there at all. So the key frustration I see in the public political sphere is that we don't know why the markets aren't working in our free market capitalist system, and we don't know why the government isn't functioning well in our constitutional republic, social democracy, what have you, when really neither are true definitions of what we have. It's just a big fascistic fuckstorm. So thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. point of view a blackout of confidence reigns this arrogant douchebag is the one to blame he taxed all your groceries as the world went insane and pledged to betray our trust give thanks unto the Lord for all this shit you can't afford beat all them girls for a ruse it's a miserable morning for device called abuse it's a gas up wedding it's a bomb with a lit fuse and all of us little lambs are lost the whole goddamn world can't be more than this it's chock full of maybes and bald-headed babies And maybe I'm crazy to depend on my eyes The whole goddamn world can't be more than that I'm begging for kindness and fighting a blindness That burns and hurts nearly everyone A congress of assholes confused Another
Love-hating villains that spit in your face while 